The information provided on the Finesse Your Money podcast is not intended to constitute legal, business, financial or other professional or product advice. It is provided as general information only and is not intended as a substitute for personal advice from a qualified and licensed professional who is familiar with the facts of your particular circumstances. Ever asked yourself where your money is going? It's a common problem for businesses and people personally. Is it dumb luck to be successful with money? Or is it the smartest and most successful businesses and people that plan and know their numbers? Is your money out of control? In this first season of Finesse Your Money, we're focusing on challenges for businesses right now and practical steps that you can take to overcome them. We've also got some awesome tips from our guests about what they are personally doing to keep their money in check. Finesse Your Money is hosted by me, Janine Wilson. I've been a financial advisor for 10 years and an accountant beforehand for, well, more years than I care to say, and I'm the founder of Finesse Financial Advisors. Welcome to Finesse Your Money. Today's guest is Veronica Morgan. Veronica is co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and Relocation, Relocation Australia, principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers, co-founder of the Home Buyer Academy, co-host of the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast and author of Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. I do like that title. <laughs> Did you have to take a breath before saying that? <laughs> I did. It was quite the mouthful. So you're also a licensed real estate agent, buyer's agent and qualified investment property advisor. So you're a very busy lady. So thank you for joining us. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Janine. My pleasure. So Veronica, tell us more about yourself growing up. What initially sparked that interest in uh, property? Oh, well... Well, it definitely wasn't when I was growing up, but I can tell you that I did have a poster of a BMW in the back of my bedroom door growing up. So it's a little bit stereotypical. And when I did buy my first BMW, somebody said to me, I think it was my mother, oh, and you used to always have posters on your door. You were destined to be a real estate agent. <laughs> so maybe there was that link. But, but in all seriousness, I didn't, um, didn't at all have any inspiration through my childhood. It was actually uh, as a result of having a failed business and I needed to pay some debts. Right. So that's how I got into real estate and I just happened to realise that I love it. Well, that's great. It's good to find what you're really passionate about. That's a bit like me in my business. I, I just love helping people. I guess that's uh, who I am and how I connect to my work. All right, so can you tell us a bit more about anything you're working on behind the scenes at the moment? Well, I am working on something behind the scenes and uh, it's really support for first home buyers because I guess... Over the years, what I've really noticed is that first home buyers, they are some of the most vulnerable property buyers out there. They really need a firm footing on the property ladder in order to actually get the full benefit out of buying a property. Mm. And they can't really afford to get a good buyer's agent, you know, and they can't really afford for advice. So I'm working on a project actually with joint venture with Megan Hetherington, who's a Brisbane-based buyer's agent, and we've formed a business called Home Buyer Academy, and we are working on online support uh, and mentoring for first home buyers. So we really need to get this thing launched this year sometime, and I'm very excited about it. 
I'm really pleased to hear that because you're absolutely right. Obviously, I'm in the financial advice business and so few young people get advice, but we all know how beneficial that can be. You're getting the compounding benefits over a mm. very long time. And even if you do make a mistake over a very long period of time, you know, they're, they're probably less important. Um, you know, if you're in your 50s or 60s and making a mistake about your retirement, it's going to have a far bigger impact than it is if you're, you know, in your 20s and you've got the benefit of 40 years to come. That's very true. Although the problem with property is because it's so, as you financial planners love to call it, a lumpy investment. Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, which obviously means that, you know, you, you put everything into one basket and as a first home buyer they don't have anything left to invest in anything else usually so if you get that wrong you can actually unravel your entire financial future and yes i do agree with that and i mean i think that to some extent you know obviously young people the other investment that they have would be superannuation and because that can be just trickling in at a fairly slow rate they're not going to have lots of big rises and falls and so on but again they can get the benefit of diversification there although you know again I've had plenty of people on the phone to me this week sort of saying oh look what will I do you know I've just lost 30 percent of my investments for retirement so you know it doesn't matter what you do there's risks what would you say to people who are fearful right now Okay, the first thing I'd say to people who are fearful right now, and I presume you're referring to coronavirus and what that might do to the property market, is yeah. that this too will pass. You know, I know it's horrible and it feels like we're falling off a cliff and life will never be the same and maybe it won't be the same, but it will pass. And property is a long game. And if we're making knee-jerk, short-term, panicked decisions right now, we will probably regret them. And so I really would just encourage people that doing nothing right at the minute is probably better than knee-jerking. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I know I, I probably wasn't going to raise this, but you, you, I saw something you posted during the week. And there's certainly some, you know, charlatans out there now preying on people's fear. Ah, uh, yes. Well, and this is really annoying me. And in fact, in many ways, I feel a bit embarrassed to be a real estate agent at the moment because you know, and look, there's some fantastic agents out there that are really giving steady advice and really a steady hand to their clients. But there are some who just don't know how to deal with this, who are panicked themselves. And some of the information that is being put out there by some agents trying to basically scare people into listing their property, i.e. the market will never recover. This is your one chance to get out while you can. You know, all this sort of ridiculous stuff. It's yeah. not based on evidence. If they actually took a moment to look back in time and look back at the Australian property market over the last 100 or so years, they will realise that we, it has withstood the depression. It has withstood world wars. It has, and you know, yes, there might be a hit for a period of time, but it always recovers and never in decades, but within a decade, and it always continues to grow. And so, and in fact, I think if you go back over a hundred years on average, the, and I don't like to talk about the Australian property market because it's full of thousands of micro markets, but I think it's grown something like year on year an average of 8% per annum since 1900 or something. So, you know, they, they just fail to apply the basic test of just to slow down for a minute and look at history and stop this silly, silly sort of fear mongering. And that really annoys the crap out of me. Yeah. And I agree. And I, you know, I hear the same thing from people about the share markets. Obviously I talk to my clients about, you know, strategically about shares and property, but I'm hearing the same thing in the, in the share market. Mm. It will recover. I mean, mm. 
people thought the world was ending and jumping out of buildings when the GFC was happening, but we've recovered, albeit potentially slower than what, you know, most of us investors would have liked, but we have recovered. So I agree, you know, just reflect back on history and, you know, learn some lessons from it and be patient, I think. So many of these downturns, uh, you know, I'm just looking at some um, some data the other day and so many of these downturns, within 12 months of the end of it, have actually recovered all the losses or very close to all the losses. Mm. And that's within 12 months. And some of the, and that included World War II, which went for six years. Mm. You know, the, the in nearly, uh, it, it took, after 12 months, nearly all of the losses over that six-year period were regained. Yeah. And that's just in, just in the Australian share market. That's not necessarily property. But, I mean, and this is the thing, that people just need to take a breath, take a moment and just stay the course. Turn off the TV. Mm. <laughs> stop, stop worrying for a while. I've, I've actually limited myself to 30 minutes a day and I think that's the best advice I gave myself. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So if you could fast forward to the future, say three or six months from now, what, what would the world look like? What's your thoughts on how we'll come out of this? <laughs> well, I think when it comes to property, I think we'll have a Mexican standoff. I think that uh, vendors won't be selling and buyers won't be buying for a period of time. And so really until we're through the woods here, I think that that's probably going to be the state of play. There will be the odd person that panics, panics and buyers, panics and sells, but the majority will basically do nothing. And, you know, we could still be homebound in six months' time. So, therefore, you know, we could be having the same discussion. Yeah, it's just there's so many unknowns. I think people do just need to take pause and and see how things evolve. Mm. So have you made any changes to the way you handle your personal finances in this period? You know, what are your top tips if people are feeling the pinch financially? Yeah, well, it certainly does bring to the front of mind the importance of buffers, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people have looked at me with a weird look when I've said, you know, you need three to six months emergency funds and they look at me straight and go, you'll thank me one day. Yeah, yeah. So the importance of buffers and so, you know, there's a certain amount of comfort that, that I can draw. I, I quite frankly like better buffers because I just actually built a house well, I pay cash for the renovation. So, you know, maybe not the wisest financial decision in retrospect now, but I am looking at refinancing now that, you know, obviously get revaluations, et cetera, et cetera. And that was already part of my plan, I guess has a, a different level of importance right now than it did before. Um, that was sort of just good housekeeping, I guess, that I was going down that path. Yeah. You know, uh, I would like to, and I guess if I was a little ahead of that, I would, I'd actually be looking at maybe potentially possibly buying another property. Mm. Although, and, I, and I'm very careful when I talk to my investor clients versus my owner-occupier clients at the minute because the advice is, is different. And the investor clients, there is the, the added pressure of potentially property sitting vacant for a period of time potentially copying a real hit on the actual rental return for a period of time. So the actual asset itself has to be front of mind and and number one. But so you've got to make sure it's a great asset, but you also got to really look at the purchase price and make sure you're offsetting any potential losses over a period of time in terms of cash flow and and building that into your actual offer for the property. Yeah, yeah. but an owner-occupier is a completely different kettle of fish. You know, if you need to upgrade, you need to upgrade. If you've already sold, then you still need a home. You know, so if you're downsizing, then you might wait. You know, who knows? But um, there, are, there are market conditions that suit different types of buyers, that's for sure. And, and look, I guess what I'm saying to clients is you've got to be ready. If you're not ready, you can't do anything. 
Yeah, and, and I think it's that readiness that I'm, I'm sort of talking to my clients about. Some of them, are, you know, we've already done the advice from a strategic perspective and now I'm saying, look, we just need to make sure that we're ready when the time comes. Mm. But, and you can't perfectly time any market and no one's got a crystal ball. But I think, you know, we, we talked already about taking a pause. So I just think it's take a pause, make sure you're ready, understand what's happening even in credit markets. I mean, with lenders, what yeah. changes are lenders making? We need to understand those. So we need to have a little bit of evidence around that before we hit the go button because there'll mm. be nothing worse than having to settle on a property and your finance has fallen over or something. So, you know, exercise some caution. And it's also getting advice from the right people. So we're, I'm always recommending my clients continue to con talk to their broker because, you know, for instance, a lot of people think, oh, well, I want a, a six-month settlement at the moment. And I said, talk to your broker. And they come back and, and the broker says, well, actually, no, you'll have to get a whole new pre-approval after three months. And so I wouldn't want that. That's too risky. So, you know, those sorts of conversations um, have to be had. And people are going off thinking, oh, that makes sense. Six-month settlement makes sense because this could go for six months, but it doesn't if you actually get all the advice you need from all the right quarters. Yeah. And you're absolutely, things are evolving, you know, day to day, minute by minute almost, but it's about staying in contact with your key advisors and making sure you know what implications um, your decisions are having and how they kick on. Because as you say, six months, everyone thinks, oh, well, this will all be over in six months, you know, she'll be right. But again, you've got to go back to the table to get that lending in place and, you know, your income might have changed in that time or, you know, some other credit criteria out of your control may have changed the bank's view of you yes. as, a, as, a, as a borrower Borrower may have changed. So mm. It's very true. I mean, what gets me is we've got such short memories. You know, it, it's only a couple of years ago that people were getting caught out having bought off the plan. and you know, and they thought, oh, it's money's easy and I'll have no problem settling on this. And then the market starts turning down and also the banks started uh, tightening up their lending criteria. So all of a sudden people are finding it, were finding it difficult to actually settle on properties that they thought they'd have no problems getting the funding for, you know, maybe a couple of years earlier. Um, or they might have had a baby in the meantime or they might have changed jobs or, you know, who knows, the, the things that happen in life. And, and we all forget this, that it's not that long ago. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I'm laughing here Veronica and this isn't funny but I had a client accidentally buy a new car because they forgot they had <laughs> lending in place that might be impacted by that oh dear so, <laughs> accidentally, bought a, accidentally bought a new car I love it <laughs> that's life so obviously this uh, whole crisis we're facing into right now will end at some point. So what do you think are the longer-term ramifications for property investors? Well, I think that uh, long-term, I think if property investment is part of your strategy, then, then still think about long-term because let's face it, there's benefits in buying property. And, and look, let me caveat whatever I say by saying I only think really maybe 5% of property is worth buying for investment. So I am not one of these property bulls at all. No. Um, so, you know, you can easily lose money in property and you can also easily lose in terms of opportunity costs. So um, there's only a certain type of property or, or amount of property that should be bought for investment. If you have the capacity to buy that sort of property and that is part of your long-term plan, then absolutely stay the course. It might not be that you buy it now, but it also might be that you are ready and you can recognise an opportunity that does come along and it's a great opportunity. Mm, precisely. Thank you. So in future, like I don't see that necessarily changing. It's just being opportunistic and being educated. 
Yeah, and I do think that is the key. It's about finding the right advisors uh, and then taking their advice. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, it's one of my bugbears when it comes to financial planners because I recommend everyone talk to a financial planner, but a lot of financial planners won't discuss property with their clients. And yet it's the, usually the single most, you know, the single largest asset they have, even if they only have their own home. It's just insane not to have that conversation with your planner. I absolutely agree with you, Veronica. It's one of my bugbears too, that I think that it is absolutely part of people's life. Australians love property. They love property investment. They obviously love buying homes. So many of us own our own homes. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense to um, discuss that. I mean, even if I look at some of the superannuation rules right now, some of those are predicated on the home. I mean, there's an opportunity for people to downsize their home in the future and put some of that money into super. Mm. I mean, you, you must, as a financial advisor, be able to speak about property in an intelligent and informed way. <laughs> he he. <laughs> Thanks. Are there some key indicators, you know, property investors should be looking out for right now to help them decide on the next move to buy or sell? Well, I think with investors, um, quite often people own property and they're not really thinking about how it's performing relative to other potential choices, right? So, you know, some time ago I actually developed a methodology for for assessing the calibre of a um, an investment property. And when I say the calibre, it's not saying, oh, this will go up X percent over however many years because who can, who can predict that? Plenty of spruikers do, by the way. So if anyone's actually spruiking that and, and claiming that, then, then run. <laughs> yeah, run. Um, so the, the, the reality is that we divided the properties into sort of flyers, floaters and flops, right? So if you've got a flop, yeah, get rid of it because basically it's either underperforming or it's, or it's going backwards or it's, it's just being an anchor in terms of your overall uh, investment strategy. If it's a floater, you know, floaters have to be sort of considered in the whole scheme of things. You know, floaters will do okay. You'd never want to willingly buy a floater, but plenty of people own floaters, right? Yes. So if you own a floater, early in your in your investment journey then the longer you own it the further away you fall away from from others who have bought a flyer instead of a floater right so the gap between the underperformers and the overperformers widens over time um but if you're in your 50s and you're thinking i'm going to retire in 10 years well the cost of getting out of it and getting into another one is probably going to take away any added gain you'd have from getting rid of that floater so therefore the floaters should always be considered on a whole bunch of other factors well. and I always send you know anyone's got a floater before you decide to sell it I'll say well you definitely need to go and talk to your financial planner about that in the whole context of everything else you're doing um, a flyer we do everything you can in, to try to avoid selling a flyer because it's it's just an above you know and I, we call them above median performers so basically if you picked if you say chose any suburb right and within that suburb you could buy an apartment right there's lots of different two-bedroom apartments in suburb x and some suburb some apartments will track at the median in terms of growth others will do better than that others will do less than that so we look at well first of all at suburb level what areas do better than other areas and to be quite frank that comes down to the safest areas are inner sydney and inner melbourne and i know that plenty of people invest elsewhere but i don't see them as safe and as robust as those two areas so then within those areas you go okay well what 
asset is going to actually do better than other assets. So you've really got to look very carefully and critically at what characteristics does any individual property need to lend itself to being an overperformer in those particular suburbs. So you've really got to have extraordinary market knowledge and buyer knowledge and understand what the local buyers, what the local owner occupiers search for and value in a property. And those are the sorts of things. And I've developed a, a methodology to actually score every property that we buy, whether it's an owner occupier or for an investor, to give a sense of comfort as to, well, is this likely to be an overperformer or not? Mm. And we so, score them on all those characteristics. So are you talking about things like, you know, an art deco building in an area that's now been demolished and, you know, they're all high rises or, you know, those sorts of things? Yeah, that's, that's a good example. Art deco, for instance, it's scarcity, right? So scarcity and there's also land value. So you, art deco apartments, there might be two or, or six or nine maybe in, in a, sorry, four or six or nine in a block. Um, they typically have a higher land um, proportion, but I don't just go for land value. And I know that that's sort of going against the grain of what a lot of people say, the value is in the land. It's where the land is located that is important. It's not valuable if it's not in an area where land is valuable. So, you know, there's people that justify buying a house and land package out in the outskirts of the city because it's on land. Well, like, I'm sorry, I'd rather buy an Art Deco apartment close to the city every day of the week versus that, mm. even though you're buying an apartment. So, yeah, so the scarcity, there's also, you know, the aspect, the light, natural light, you know, the connect, the floor plan, the connection outdoors, indoors, the maintenance of the building. Yeah. There's, there's, there's so many other factors that come into it. So you're the principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers and you uh, help people make better property decisions. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> the fundamental of what we do is help people buy without regrets. Yes. And I can't tell you how many people I meet and they start telling me their story of woe when it comes to property. Nearly everyone's got one. And that's alarming because of the cost of getting in, the cost of getting out and the cost of in between what the opportunity cost of what you could have done in the first place. Absolutely. Um, but there's also the emotional cost. You know, one of the things that in my business, we, we respect the value that emotional, the importance that emotion plays in the property buying process, right? So people often, a lot of investors say, oh, I don't want to use emotion. I, I'm just cut and dry and I work only on the numbers. And it's like, well, that's garbage. You might do it, but even the fact that you're doing that is actually an emotion. It's a response to an emotion. The emotion is usually fear. Yes. <laughs> so there's still emotion. Yeah. So we bring that out and say, well, you know, Emotion is very, very important in the buying process. We need to identify it, recognise it, harness it, use it where it's necessary. And so our whole process about helping people make good decisions is about respecting and recognising where emotion comes to play and not pretending it doesn't exist. And I think that's right. I mean, even if you think about it from the point of view that if that property investor who's stating that there's no shouldn't be emotion involved, I mean, they're not they're discounting the fact that at some point in the future they may want to sell that property, and there's going to be emotional from the buyer of that property. Bingo. That, that can impact, you know, how good an investment is at that end of it. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we do score properties on is is the. Uh, owner-occupier appeal, but also multiple buyer appeal. The more owner-occupiers in different segments of the market that you have that potentially want to buy that property, the more emotion potentially down the track, which will actually result in better growth. Good advice. <laughs> so I'm particularly interested in how you identify and select those investments that outperform. Can you tell us more about your process and how you work with clients and what they can sort of expect from you? 
Well, yeah, certainly, and particularly with an investment, okay, so we, we do what we call, we run what we call a getting started session with every client before we start the search process. So, look, we help clients when they find a property themselves as well. We'll help them evaluate and negotiate an individual property. But generally speaking, we do help people actually find and evaluate and negotiate for a property from go to woe. And so in order to do that, we have to effectively understand or have to have our clients effectively understand what the possibilities are for that search. And quite often they'll come to us and if they just, we just run off their brief without questioning or interrogating that in any way, then we can often be looking for the wrong property and often not be adding any value. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of buyers agents do that. They just go, oh yeah, you want one of those? Well, I'll go and find one of those. We want to educate our clients to what the possibilities are and the things that they may not have anticipated uh, at the outset so that we can really open up that search if necessary. And sometimes it doesn't need to be opened up, but we just need to test it at the outset. So we do these getting started sessions and obviously they're different for an owner-occupier versus an investor. An owner-occupier, there's all these personal requirements that are, that are important, you know, it's a home and it has to be right. So with an investor, however, there's often the, these preconceptions about what makes a good investment. So we need to go through and actually educate them as to what the best type of property for their budget. And sometimes they've actually set a budget at an arbitrary level of what they feel comfortable at rather than really what's going to buy them the optimum investment property. So we need to go through that differential as well to say, you know what, you're limiting your budget to 800,000 because that's where you feel comfortable. However, these are the compromises you'll be making and down the track that could make the difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost opportunity versus if you actually went to where you could go based on what your broker's told you, say you went to a million for argument's sake, you could buy a better caliber of property that is likely to grow at a greater rate. And so then we sort of go through the impacts of those decisions and they may still choose you know, the budget they feel more comfortable with, but we want them to be understanding what the long-term implications of that can be versus making different decisions at the outset. So there's no, oh, if only you told us down the track. We want to make sure that they really do make their decisions with their eyes wide open. And so that whole process is educating them as to the areas, the types of property within those areas, the pros and cons, and some of the exceptions to the rules as well. It sounds like a great process there because you're providing education and you're really drawing out the requirements and, and, you know, challenging and, you know, helping people make informed decisions. And that's much what, like what I do in, in my strategy sessions with clients. It's really about educating them about the whys and wherefores and, and what the ramifications are so that you end up with the best outcome. And so I think as well that, you know, financial advisors working with you know, property buyers and so on, you know, with the, you know, experienced mortgage brokers and things, bringing all of those different aspects of investment decisions together gives the person the most benefit. Well, I think it takes a village to buy a property. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think too that unfortunately it's really hard to get unbiased advice because mm -hmm. everyone's got their barrow to push and, you know, some people could claim that I'm doing the same thing because I only buy within a 10K radius of CBD or Sydney. But I actually do advise people when I don't think they should be buying property. And that's not very common from a property buyer. So, and I will actually recommend when I think, well, maybe they need to consider Melbourne and I can refer them to somebody down there. Once again, not usual from a property buyer that, that actually say, don't buy in my neck of the woods, but I'm not your usual property buyer, I guess. And likewise, you know, when people come to me saying, oh, I want to buy for cash flow. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I really want you to go and talk to a financial planner because there are other much safer, less 
less clunky ways you can actually invest for cash flow. I can, I'm sure you can concur. And I don't know what they are because I'm not an expert in those areas. But I also know that if you buy for cash flow and property, then that's enormously risky and it's a pretty ugly, it can be very ugly, not, not too far in the future. Oh, and I agree. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people have bought property for cash flow and ended up with something in a mining town and the mine shut down or, you know, mm. one of those <laughs> examples. So what are three, you know, of the most common mistakes people make and, you know, what are the three most common questions people are asking you? Well, one of the most common mistakes is that they don't understand what they're doing and well, they don't fully appreciate that agents know more than they do about the whole situation. And so they're unmatched when they're dealing with uh, sales agents. And, and I think that's a very common mistake. And I'm often meeting people, usually men, you know, the odd woman too though, but it is a bit of a male, alpha male thing. Oh, well, I negotiate for, for a living, so I wouldn't have no problems dealing with those agents. And then it's like, well, you know what? The agent actually knows what the vendor's motivation is. The agent actually knows really how many other buyers there are. The agent actually knows what those other offers have been, if there have been any, and whether they're true or not. The agent actually knows that stuff and you know nothing. All you know is your own circumstances. And so that is one thing I think a lot of buyers make the mistake of, thinking we should be able to do this and they just fail to appreciate how unmatched they are. Another mistake that people make is that they think the timing is the most important thing. You know, it's like when you buy. And you know what? Yes, you can make a little bit of a gain from when you buy or when you sell, but that is the small small windfall, if you like. The big windfall is buying the quality asset in the first place and making sure it's the right property so you don't have to offload it in a short period of time. And that time and compounding actually makes you a lot more wealthy than if you hadn't done it. Yeah, that's where the money really is. <laughs> You know, it's, it's yes. easy to time the market. I'm sure plenty of people have oh, it's impossible. thought they've timed the market, felt quite, you know, clever about it only to find later on that it wasn't. <laughs> well, there's luck and they're just failing to, I mean, I'm an expert, right? I do property, I breathe it, I live it. And, and I still, I've, sometimes I could dine out on some of the, the timings, my timings and other times I've, I've made decisions and I know that they weren't at the great, greatest time. But for me, I had other reasons for selling or buying the property. So it's the long-term view always. Timing is really focusing on the short term, not the long term. Uh, And the other thing too is very easy to overpay. Yes. And the reason so many people overpay is because they do not set their limit and educate themselves as to the value of that property before they commence negotiations or before they start bidding. Mm. And I see it time and time again. I see it a lot at auction and you can absolutely tell when people have actually gone over their limit and they give, they, when I'm not bidding against them, it's great because for me it's just pure sport. Um, <laughs> I find it fascinating how many people go and spend sometimes millions of dollars without really having tested their budget, really having tested their, their maximum bid and really having given themselves ultimate confidence in really what it's worth before going to the auction. Mm. Uh, but it happens in a private treaty scenario as well. They, they start negotiating and then they, then they start thinking about where, where should they stop once they're already in the process. And there's loads of uh, behavioural biases that kick off that actually limit your ability to make good decisions and stop overpaying. Yeah. They get pot committed. <laughs> pot committed, exactly, yes. <laughs> is, that a, is that an official term? Uh, uh, I think if you're playing poker, so if you're right. gambling, I think it is a it is a gambling term, and it yeah. is just gambling, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's a consistency effect. It's like once you started the process, you're in it. 
you don't want to appear capricious. I love that word. <laughs> so what are the questions people are asking you right now? Anything in particular? Well, they are worried about overpaying at the minute, which is actually interesting because a lot of the time they don't. But when the market sort of starts turning or gets into a transitional period, which is where we're experiencing now, then they do suddenly worry about overpaying. And what often happens then is they actually don't make offers when they should, you know what I mean? So it actually can change. <laughs> they are worried about the timing at the moment because, of course, there is quite a lot of doom and gloom out there and uh, that is something that people are always asking. Uh, uh, they always ask it, to be honest, but obviously more so now with the whole coronavirus um, situation. They also, you know, there's a lot of media around there around falls, you know, property prices are going to fall 20%, et cetera, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Now, interestingly enough, um, on our podcast, The Elephant in the Room, we just interviewed Shane Oliver a little while back. Yes. And, you know, he's well known. He's probably one of Australia's best known uh, commentators. And he predicted 25% falls over the, you know, the downturn between 2017 and 2019. Well, he was wrong. Yes. Uh, so were those predicting 40% falls. The usual suspects trot out 40% falls and they're probably out there saying the same thing now. The problem is that these forecasters don't really know what's going to happen. They're, they're putting together various modelling around various scenarios and, and the media wants these stories. And, you know, Shane Oliver was quoted recently uh, saying 20% down. That His report at that time said between 5 and 20, depending on which base case. He wasn't actually expecting it to be 20. He was more expecting it to be 5. But what did the headlines say? Mm. Property market could fall 20%. And so this is the problem at the moment, that most people are reading the media. They're not actually going to the source of these predictions and these forecasts and actually reading about all the research that goes into that and really educating themselves. Yeah. And, I, and you're right. I mean, right now the media is just filling up 24 hours a day, aren't they? Yeah, it's and, great. <laughs> you know, and, and really it comes down to people making a front of mind decision about who they feel is reliable and going as you say back to the source and and figuring out for themselves whether you know whether the headlines are uh, are real or or not i mean it's very rare that pundits get held to account you know two or three years down the line isn't it well, we do hold them to account. We actually, every year um, for the podcast, actually bring out a full or forecaster report. Um, so if anybody wants to download it, we release it on April Fool's Day every year. Interestingly enough, we just released a 2021 on April Fool's Day. Um, if you go to theelephantintheroom.com.au, you can download that report. And we do an episode on it every year as well. And so we've only been doing it for two years, but if you can, you can get a pretty good idea that, you know, forecasting is a mugs game. It, it, it's... I'm surprised that anyone really wants to put their name to any of these forecasts because particularly with the, that downturn, that market downturn, nobody got 2019 right. Not one got the figure right. They all overstated how far property prices would fall, every single one of them. And only two commentators actually predicted that the market would had stopped falling before the May election, which, as we all know, was effectively the end of the fall. So there was only two that, that actually got in ahead of time and looked at the data and said, you know what, I think we're past the worst of it. Yeah, and it's the same in the share market. I mean, people run around chasing, costing themselves a lot of money, chasing last year's winner. Mm. So, all right, Veronica, so what are three things our listeners can do right now today to help set themselves up for the future? Well, of course, I'm not a financial planner, nor am I a mortgage broker, but I definitely encourage people to refinance. <laughs> 
if you're going to be stuck at home and a bit extra time on your hands, why not? Why not sit down and work out, you know, whether you're actually getting the best deal, whether you've, your buffers are set up, whether you've actually got an investment borrowing strategy. And I think that's a, a bit of a unique concept. Well, yeah, I think that that's a really important thing for anybody, particularly if they're investing in property to consider. I think too, that you need to be very honest about the caliber of investments that you currently hold. Your own home is one thing. Okay. Um, plenty of our clients buy B-grade properties for their own home with their eyes wide open, but because it particularly suits their needs. And, and as long as they understand that and it's priced accordingly, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But investment property, it's a totally different conversation. So being honest about the caliber of property you've got, whether you really do have opportunity cost there or not, whether you've got a flop you should be getting rid of, um, cutting your losses, all those sorts of things, you know, that's really hard because we don't like admitting when we made a mistake, but it's a really important thing to do if you're holding a, an investment portfolio. And thirdly, researching online. So use the time to prepare and understand and learn. Obviously, I encourage people to listen to the Elephant in the Room podcast. There's a lot of the fundamentals of property in that to learn about and then start actually getting online and looking at what you can buy for your money, what different budgets buy you. You know, start learning about what constitutes a good property versus an ordinary property and start thinking about, well, what do I have to be able to get? What do I have to be able to spend? What likely yield am I going to get off that? Because I, I do have a cash flow issue. I'm going to have to support this property. You know, those that sort of thinking needs to be done in preparation before anybody buys an investment property. Yeah, I agree. And I think oftentimes people don't realise that the decisions they might make might back themselves into a corner in terms of doing the next investment. And I oh, yes. feel that that's why people, so few people have more than one or two investment mm. properties. You know, the number that have, you know, five, six or more investment properties, you know, is really low. Very low. One thing that really irritates me about a lot of property experts is they talk about, you know, you buy the first one and then you buy the next one for cash flow. And it's like, oh no, because I mean, you buy, I don't know how that works in the current borrowing environment to be quite frank, but just that whole idea of borrowing money for cash flow and then limiting your opportunity to buy a quality asset the next time around because of you, you've hamstrung yourself in terms of borrowing capacity. Like that just appalls me. Yeah. So you just you keep amassing more and more garbage assets. Terrible. Yeah, no, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so where can we find you online? You've mentioned um, The Elephant in the Room is a really good resource. You've also got your um, first home buyers. So would you like to just tell our listeners what your go-to resources are? I will. Well, you can get loads of resources via my website, which is Deeds. That's G-O-O-D-E-E-D-S.com.au. You can, get, you can buy the book on there. Uh, up the top, there's a little button that says book. I think, or auction ready, one or the other. But anyway, you, you'll know what it is. Uh, you can also go directly to the podcast via my website as well, or you can go to theelephantintheroom.com.au. Uh, the other, the Home Buyer Academy is homebuyeracademy.com.au. There is a free uh, resource there that you can download, which is a mini course on how to price a property. And uh, I highly recommend that for anybody who's actually looking at the process of negotiating or buying a property. So there's, as I said, a free little three video mini course with a... Um, uh, there's a spreadsheet template that's attached to that as well. There's fundamentally, we don't yet have it up and running as a business, but there are resources in there and blogs in there available for first home buyers and loads of blogs as well uh, on my website, which is gooddeeds.com.au. And I've had a look at those um, resources, Veronica, they're really high quality, so people should take advantage of them. 
Thanks so much for joining us today, Veronica. There's been some really valuable insights there and don't forget to check out those resources that Veronica's talked about today and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Janine. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed the show today and have some action steps you can take right now to get control of your money. Join me, Janine Wilson, next time for Finesse Your Money. Meantime, head to my website, www.finesseadvisors.com or email me at admin at finesseadvisors.com to claim a gift voucher for a discovery session with me valued at $150. Make sure you put gift voucher in the headline.